The Seahawks believe they had as good of an offseason as any team in the NFL, but was it good enough to give them a top 10 roster compared to the rest of the league? We'll be breaking it all down on a Wednesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined here for our Wednesday episode by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s, as always, whether you're listening from Golden, Colorado, or across the country in Portland, Maine. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And hopefully you had an amazing 4th of July holiday with your families we've got a jam-packed episode coming your way we've only got a little over three weeks until the start of training camp that still feels like an eternity for me but it'll be here before you know it so we're going to continue our all underrated squads in Seahawks history with linebackers and receivers we'll continue our 90-man countdown going into the 20s numbers 30 through 26 and much more jam-packed episode coming your way so let's get to it now for your lead story here on our Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks this offseason Seattle spent a bit more money than people anticipated they were aggressive in free agency they had four draft picks in the first two rounds and with all the investments they made in free agency in the draft they believe they've taken a big step forward in terms of talent and being ready to contend in the NFC, but have they done enough to have a top 10 roster in the NFL? Rob, looking at ESPN and PFF, as we've talked about a few times, it's ranking season, it's list season right now in between OTAs and training camp. Both PFF and ESPN have the Seahawks just on the outside of the top 10. PFF at number 11, ESPN at number 12. What are your thoughts on the Seahawks in terms of where they fit compared to the rest of the league in terms of talent and upside on their roster? Well, I think first of all, Corbin, I think that's fair ranking. 11th and 12th, as you mentioned. I, I personally have Seattle at 10th. Uh, you know, I, I think that they are, are the, the only team that's on, for those of you who are able to, to see the screen here, um, the, the teams are ranked. Um, this is according to PFF's Dalton, Wasserman, and Jim Wyman. Um, number one, Philadelphia Eagles. Number two, San Francisco 49ers. Three, Cincinnati Bengals. Four, Kansas City Chiefs. I have the Chiefs as number one, I should mention. Um, number five, Buffalo Bills. Six, Dallas Cowboys. Number seven, New York Jets. Number eight, Baltimore Ravens. Number nine, Los Angeles Chargers. Number 10, Miami Dolphins. And then for PFF, they have the Seahawks at number 11. For me, Corbin, I think that you can make an argument for all of those clubs above Seattle as PFF has them. I, I, the one I had the personal disagreement on the most with ESPN was they had Miami all the way up there at number four. Four, which I think is a little bit crazy. It's one of the reasons why I think that Seattle, you can make an argument, should be in the top 10, but is not in any in any way, in my opinion, should deserving of a top six, top seven, top eight ranking. And that's just the front seven, the, the line of scrimmage. And and really, it's the front seven on the defensive side of the ball, but it's, it's the line of scrimmage on the offensive side of the ball as well. I, I am very encouraged by what I saw from Seattle's young offensive tackles a year ago, but... 
the the bar has been set very very high now. I think those expectations are are going to be uh, are going to be difficult to um, to hold up to. And, and I just see that the, the pass rushes that Seattle is going to be facing this year. To me, they are right outside. They're, I have them at tenth, um, but I think that that's kind of right there on the outside looking in as far as the real Super Bowl contenders. Yeah, I think that them being just outside the top 10, I actually think that's just about right right now. Do I think there's a chance by the end of the year we could be looking at Seattle as a team that has top five, top six talent? Absolutely. But I think that there's a lot more projection going into this for the Seahawks than there is for a lot of the teams ahead of them. What I mean by that, looking at PFF's rankings here. We know what the Eagles have. We know what the 49ers have. I mean, obviously, they've got their quarterback situation, but otherwise, they are loaded at pretty much every other position. We know what Kansas City and Cincinnati are going to bring to the table. We know that Buffalo's got a lot of talent. The Jets just added Aaron Rodgers, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. Dallas has got a bunch of talent. Baltimore does. Miami, if they can keep their quarterback healthy, the Dolphins have enough talent to be a top five team potentially, but they've got some question marks. My point being here, all those teams have a lot of established stars, and Seattle's got their handful of guys that are established stars. They're Tyler Lockett's, they're DK Metcalf's, they're Quandre Diggs. I think Tariq Woolen we can throw in that category, even though he's only going to be entering his second season. He's already ascended to being one of the best corners in football. But they've got all these uncertainties in terms of, we think Devin Witherspoon's going to be great. We think he's going to be a really good player. You pick him at number five, but that doesn't guarantee success. There have been plenty of top five picks that haven't made it. Jackson Smith and Jigba, he's a first-rounder, but he's your number three receiver probably at best. How much of an impact does he really have? How good is the offensive line really going to be? You're hoping that Cross and Lucas make that big leap and that the interior of your line is better than it was a year ago. If that's the case, then your offense should be even better than it was last season. But there's a lot more what-ifs with the Seattle Seahawks than what there is with some of the other teams that are in the top 10. Now, I will say this. I I don't normally say PFF does a better job than ESPN when it comes to these rankings, but I actually agree with PFF's rankings more because there's a couple teams that were on ESPN's. Uh, San Francisco being at number eight felt a little bit low to me. I know the quarterback situation there has made it a little bit of a discussion point, but the Cleveland Browns being in the top 10 – and if Deshaun Watson returns to the form we saw a few years ago in Houston, then absolutely Cleveland could have a top 10 roster. But that's another team I was looking at today that I thought there's enough holes on that roster. And I have questions about the coaching staff too. That doesn't really fit into this particular ranking, but the talent overall, there's some really good players, but it feels like there's some holes on that roster that maybe the Seahawks don't have as many of. So that would be one gripe that I would have. I think PFF's list is a little bit better in terms of how they have the team sorted out other than I would have Kansas City much higher than what they do. But the Chiefs did lose some key players this offseason. So that's worth noting. But going back to the Seahawks, I think that 11, 12, 13, 14 range, you could make an argument depending on what your grading criteria is. You could make an argument that that's the sweet spot for them right now because there's certainly some talent on both sides of the ball. But as I said, to me, the biggest question is the uncertainty because there are a lot of young players on this team that you're going to be counting on to contribute. Can you have that happen a second year in a row? And can the young guys from last year's draft class make a big leap in year two? That doesn't always happen. So I do think there's more projection to them being a top 10 team than a lot of these other ones that are on these top 10 lists right now from both ESPN and PFF. 
Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, to me, there there is a you know, there's about five clubs there that I think that deserve to be kind of in that mix between say eight and thirteen, eight and fourteen. Um, you mentioned the Cleveland Browns. I think that's a fascinating club there because I think in terms of just name recognition, when you consider guys like Deshaun Watson, what he can be when he's at his absolute best, Nick Chubb and Miles Garrett. I mean, those three players right there have such star power that uh, that you know they, they could just put it to franchise on their back and carry them through it. I'm not sure that the Seahawks, any of their players have demonstrated the ability to do that with all due respect to the DK Metcalfs, the Tyler Lockett's, you know, the Geno Smiths or whoever the case might be on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, everybody's, we're, we're all very excited, of course, about the return of Bobby Wagner, but the reality is, is Bobby Wagner has as, as statistically of a dominant season as he's had almost in his entire NFL career this past season for an LA Rams team that wasn't very good. And so, again, I think that there is a lot of reasons for optimism in Seattle. But I think that for those people who are you know, wearing those blue shaded glasses, I think that this is a, you know, a shoe in a Super Bowl kind of contending team. I think that there still has some room to go. At the same time, I would agree with your point before. I think that ESPN is a little bit lacking on their ranking of San Francisco and perhaps a little bit lacking in their ranking of Seattle and just the NFC West in general as a whole. Yeah, and I believe it was ESPN that actually had the Rams and the Cardinals as the bottom two teams in the entire NFL. And me personally, I think the Rams still have enough talent there that I would not have them that low. But they had their positional rankings, and there are a number of positions where the Rams are near the bottom of the NFL and the Cardinals are in the same spot. So it doesn't seem like the division is being viewed near as prominently as what it has in recent seasons and to an extent I can understand it but I do think that the Seahawks shouldn't be any lower than 14th on this because there is a lot of talent there's a lot of good young players but I think to put them in the top 10 might be getting the card ahead of the horse just a little bit because I do think there's some projection to this team more so than some of the other teams above them that have more true established star talent coming up next we're going to continue our all underrated team we're going to shift to the linebackers and receivers rob and i'll have two players in each position as we go into the Wayback machine for Wayback wednesday you're listening to the locked on seahawks podcast this episode is brought your way by fanduel take your first swing at betting major league baseball and fanduel and get 10 times your first bet amount and bonus bets up to $200. That's right, just 20 bucks, and you'll land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 you can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under. So who you think is going to hit the first home run? It's all on the app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. You're listening to the Wayback Wednesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host and crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For everydayers out there, coming up on a Thursday episode, we'll continue our training camp preview with the cornerback position, which may be the deepest and most talented position on Seattle's roster. You won't want to miss it. Let's continue our all-underrated squads we have picked so far on offense. We've got quarterbacks and running backs. Defensive side of the ball, we've got safeties and corners. So we've taken care of our, our exciting skill guys, at least in the backfield on offense, and we get the entire defensive backfield filled out. But now it's time to get some of those pass catchers in. And Seattle 
has got some pretty good receivers that have kind of went under the radar over the years. So, Rob, I'm going to give you the mic here first, and you get a chance to pick two receivers in Seahawks history that you believe are underrated to put on your squad. Yeah, Corbin, there's so many great wide receivers to consider. I mean, I literally have the Wheaties box that has Steve Largent, uh, you know, right over my my shoulder. I guess it'd be the over other shoulder, uh, you know, in the background here. Um, I, I still remember that the catch Paul Scanzi made in the corner of the end zone against the Kansas City Chiefs uh, to to break Derek Thomas, the late great Derek Thomas's heart. Uh, you know, anytime I I hear people have a conversation about underrated wide receivers in Seahawks history, I, I want to have a conversation just about the underrated wide receivers who wore number 89 in Seattle's history because there's just so darn many good ones. Um, anyways, I, I could talk about this topic all, all day long. I'm going to talk about a, a player who is second in franchise history in touchdowns. Uh, and so in, in, in so many different ways, Tyler Lockett is the, the exact opposite of underrated. He's very well appreciated, but I don't know that he gets the national attention that he should. Corbin, this is a man that, that has scored at least eight touchdowns five years in a row. No wide receiver in the NFL has, has done that. He scored, he's, uh, excuse me, caught at least uh, a thousand yards worth of, of receiving um, for the last four years in a row. At least according to my back, uh, my research, I don't see any other receivers who have done that. I mean, it's his, his consistency. He's only missed one game in eight NFL seasons. Uh, Tyler Lockett is, uh, his numbers are absolutely remarkable when, when you put them up against other wide receivers. And yet I think that if you had an argument about who is the, the best wide receivers in Seahawk history, Tyler Lockett's name just kind of gets thrown in there at the end, but it usually starts off with Steve Largent or Brian Blades or Doug Baldwin or Joey Galloway or DK Metcalf or all these other terrific wide receivers, but I don't know of any of them, any of them had Tyler Lockett's combination of hands, of just wiggle at the top of a route, uh, of just the, the mind, the, the toughness, the durability. Um, I mean, he his first three years, he was an all-pro and then a back-to-back -back second team all-pro. And his last five years, he's been statistically better than any of those first three. I mean, the man is just the epitome of, of underrated. And so, again, that, that to me, I have to kind of start off with, with Tyler Lockett to have this conversation. I'm switched, I'm going to quick, quickly quickly try to switch gears over here to Daryl Turner, who is you know a wide receiver that not a lot of Seahawks fans, at least current Seahawks fans might remember number 81, but he was, his nickname was Daryl the Burner Turner because he was the best deep threat in the NFL. I mean, he, in terms of the touchdown to reception ratio, I mean, he is truly among the elite in the NFL. I believe that he scored 36 touchdowns in only 58 games. I mean, yep. and check out that math, but I mean, it's something just absolutely unbelievable he did have some off-field off demons, and that's what led to uh, you know him only playing in the NFL for four years. But there was not a more dominant uh, big play threat um, in the NFL during those four years that then Seattle's Daryl Turner he actually led the NFL in touchdown receptions one of those four years. I think it was his second year in the NFL. Absolutely unbelievable player that a lot of Seahawks fans should be knowing a lot more about Daryl Turner. I actually wrote an article yesterday that came out for 4th of July, the most explosive Seahawk players. And Daryl Turner was number one on my list because more than 50% of his career touchdowns went for at least 20 yards. This guy was as elite of a deep threat as you're going to find. It's too bad his career ended up only lasting four seasons. But man, those four years were flat out electric. 
I don't maybe have the flashy names on my list, but I would be very comfortable going with the two receivers that I've got with my all underrated squad. And the first one, not going to go too far back in the future or in the past, but I think Bobby Engram absolutely needs to be in this discussion because you are talking about a guy that only had 1,000 yard season in his career. So that's certainly going to be a red flag for anybody wanting to put him on a list. But what made Bobby Engram so special, those of you that were following the Seahawks in the early 2000s, this guy was as clutch as it came on third down, being able to move the chains. He was Mr. Reliable. 399 receptions in eight seasons with the Seahawks. Didn't score a ton of touchdowns, only had 18 of them, but extremely reliable hands. He excelled at moving the chains. Excellent football IQ. That's why he's now a coach, and he's been in the NFL for a while. He was in college ranks for a while as a coach. This guy had great savvy on the field. Maybe not the most explosive athlete or the twitchiest athlete, but he had really reliable hands. He was a guy that you could count on. Matt Hasselbeck, when he needed a big playmate, this was the receiver that he would go to. And it's unfortunate he didn't have more 1,000-yard seasons, but there were some other good receivers that he played with during his time in Seattle that ate up some of those targets. But when they needed a big play, they needed a big first down, Bobby Ingram was often the one that Matt Hasselbeck went to, not his other targets. So I, I love having him working out of the slot. As far as my other receiver, I'm going in the wayback machine with Sam McCollum, who played in the late 70s, early 80s. We're talking early years of the Seahawks. He was in the shadows of Steve Largent, who was becoming an ascending superstar at that point. But McCollum had three straight years with at least 46 receptions and at least 567 receiving yards, which in the late 70s, early 80s, as a number two receiver, those were really good numbers. In today's game, that's probably a thousand yard receiver, but they didn't throw the ball back then the way they do now. But this guy was 6'2", so he had the ability to win contested catches. He was a physical receiver. It was a tough matchup, especially for corners back then that were smaller than the ones we see out there in the field today in the NFL. So we got two contrasting receivers here. I think McCullough would be more of a downfield weapon with his size, Bobby Ingram being that Mr. Automatic from the slot. I really like having these two guys catching passes from Seneca Wallace with my all-underrated team. Let's go to the defense now. Linebackers. Seattle's got a pretty storied linebacker uh, history with Bobby Wagner being the headliner, but there's been some other really good linebackers that have come through the Pacific Northwest Rob, who makes your list of all underrated team for your two linebackers? Yeah, Corbin, it's similar to the wide receiver group. I mean, there's just so many names that, that flood through my head. Um, you know, I, I listen to, to one of them uh, on the radio all the time. Dave Wyman was a terrific linebacker for the, for the Seahawks. Um, you know, I, I bought a book when I was a kid from Brian Bosworth, who I think is an underrated linebacker in, in Seahawks history. He wasn't the, the, the big, the, the, the superstar that, that he was selected to be, but, but still he was a good player. And it was actually the guy who kind of, I thought was a better football player serving alongside of him, Fred Young, that I considered in this role as well. And it was because that Brian Bosworth got so much attention and there were other guys like Wyman or like Fred Young, who I thought were actually better, more consistent football players. And that's what got me thinking back to the year, you know, 2000s, 2005, 
Seattle goes to their very first Super Bowl. And, you know, everybody remembers the Legion of Boom in Seattle's victorious Super Bowl. And when you go back all those years ago, I mean, Matt Hasselback, Sean Alexander, you mentioned Bobby Ingram correctly, sir. Um, you know, as their critical uh, roles that they played in Seattle's success at that point. I remember a really good linebacking core that was definitely Lofa Tatuku in the middle, got a lot of credit. But Leroy Hill and Julian Peterson on the outside, those two did not get as much credit, I don't think, as they should have. Julian Peterson spent a lot of time in the NFL, San Francisco, Detroit. He only spent three seasons in the in the NFL with the Seahawks, but all three of those seasons, he was a pro bowler, so he definitely had a very memorable time in Seattle. And then with, um, with, with Leroy Hill, I mean, talk about a guy that I, I think, again, was just kind of criminally underrated in terms of his ability to drop back into coverage. He didn't have, he did not have very many interceptions. Don't, don't, I don't want to misconstrue that, but he was productive. He had good instincts in, in, uh, in coverage. He had terrific speed when Seattle asked him to blitz as they did in his rookie season. We only had nine starts, but I believe he had seven and a half sacks. Uh, and he was terrific in that regard. Um, and just talk about, I mean, he's kind of like the classic run and hit linebacker. He's six foot one, 235 pounds, Corbin. He just absolutely smacked people. He gave Seattle kind of that, that, that initial speed element that they had been lacking. And, and certainly as, as great as a, as a player as Lofa Tupu was, and I was a huge, huge Lofa Tupu fan, he didn't have the closing speed that Leroy Hill had. And, and so to me, that was one of the reasons why I think that the Hill was, again, kind of like Daryl Turner, because of the speed that they offered. Um, I think that they, are, they were better players from a scouting perspective than I think that the average fan might have understood just because of, of the, the element of speed that they offered and, and how they made the opponents game, uh, game playing against them that much more difficult. It's fitting that the Seahawks are going to be wearing 90s throwbacks because I have quite a few players that were really good on those 90s teams that didn't get the attention they deserved because, quite frankly, the Seahawks stuck for most of the 90s. But Terry Wooden is one of the players that always jumps out to me. And I was just starting to watch football when he was really dominating. But I just remember seeing number 90. It felt like he was in on every tackle from 1993 to 1995, three straight years with over 100 tackles. In 1995, he led the league in solo tackles, not combined tackles, solo tackles. This guy was an outstanding run defender, and he was an underrated coverage linebacker too. Six interceptions during his time with the Seahawks. He recovered 10 fumbles. So this guy was involved around the football seemingly every play, and yet he never made a Pro Bowl. He never was an All-Pro selection, and I think he was good enough to be that caliber of player for a number of years in Seattle. But unfortunately, he was playing in the Pacific Northwest for teams that weren't playoff teams, so he flew under the radar. But Wooden was a really good player, and right before Bobby Wagner came to town, I think David Hawthorne would be remembered a lot more by Seahawks fans if one of the greatest linebackers ever didn't come in right after he left. But David Hawthorne fit everything Pete Carroll looks for. He was an undrafted, undersized guy coming out of TCU. He comes in and has three straight 100-tackle seasons, two of those being with Pete Carroll as the coach in 2010 and 2011. He intercepted seven passes. This guy had six sacks, too. He could blitz. He was athletic. He could do a little bit of everything. And, oh, by the way, he had that crucial fumble recovery and that huge upset over the Saints in the Beast Mode game. 
So this guy came through with big plays. He did a little bit of everything, and he had some decent seasons in New Orleans, but he never was as dominant as he was the three years in Seattle. I thought he was one of the few bright spots in the defense that had a lot of holes. David Hawthorne cleaned a lot of plays up, so I've got to have him on this list of players that I think is very underrated, regardless of position for the Seahawks. That was pretty darn good, and then, oh, by the way, Bobby Wagner is going to come in and make everybody forget about you, and it's unfortunate, but he was a really solid player. You're listening to the Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. It's your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there. We greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first lesson five days a week. For everydayers, we'll continue our 90-man countdown tomorrow, and we're going to be talking cornerbacks with our latest training camp preview installment. You won't want to miss it. Let's get to that 90-man countdown. We're now going into the 20s, numbers 30 through 26. A lot of bigger names, a lot of familiar names for Seahawk fans. And Rob, we're going to start off this list at number 30. He's numbered 30, so this is the perfect spot for him. But this is a guy that I think everybody is thinking he's lost his starting job because Devin Witherspoon has come to town as number five overall pick. But Mike Jackson continues to tell people with what he does on the field that not so fast, my friend. And as we've talked about If they put Witherspoon in the slot some, Mike Jackson could still very well have a role, a significant one, for this secondary in Seattle. Corbin, by now I think we've played through all of the Mike Jackson as as far as the entertainer, uh, you know, kind of jokes and cliches. But yet here is another one. (laughs) Devin Devin Witherspoon, you know, thinks that he's just going to be handed a job, then he better watch out for the man in the mirror because Mike Jackson is going to be right there. And I mean that that's just the way that he's wired. I mean that that was the way that he was at my at the University of Miami. It's one of the reasons why I really liked him. You know, I'm a big fan of finding, uh, you know, just battle-tested corners that have to kind of work their way up through the rankings just to get onto the field. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm a big, huge fan of, of getting guys that, you know, the undrafted free agents from Alabama or from LSU or from Ohio State or, you know, any of those programs that, that consistently churn out big time athletes at, at sp- certain positions. And that's exactly kind of what Mike Jackson was. He was a late bloomer and he's doing the same thing here in Seattle. I love the physicality. I love the the, the mind, the, just the mindset. I mean, this is like just a grinder. If he doesn't win the starting job, and obviously the Seahawks are expecting Witherspoon to earn that starting job but if he doesn't Mike Jackson still has the mentality of, of playing with that edge when he does get his opportunity whereas a young player might kind of go in the tank mentally if they don't earn that starting job immediately so that to me is one of the things I like about Mike Jackson why I think that he is you can justify why he is where he is because he played like an upper level starter in the NFL a year ago all year long and so that's why I think the Seahawks view him as such right now The interceptions weren't there, obviously, but he had a bunch of pass breakups and he did the one thing that you and I talk about frequently when we're looking at corners. Pete Carroll expects his corners to be able to come up and tackle and Mike Jackson did that. He recovered fumbles. He forced fumbles. He did a lot of good things. Were there some growing pains? Yeah, it was his first year as a start in the NFL, but this is certainly one of the better backup corners in the league. If he does not win or maintain a starting job, he's as good of a backup on the outside as you're going to find in the entire NFL. Now, let's get to one of the best in the business at a different craft, and that is making tackles on special teams. Nick Ballore, the last three or four years in Seattle, all he does is just go downfield and frequently make hits and we're not just talking light tackle this guy will come down and hit stick you 
and he fires up the entire sideline. And then he goes over and starts telling jokes because that's just what Nick Ballore does. But this guy has another two-year contract, not just because of what he does in the ever-so-important third phase of the game. He still can play some fullback for you. In a pinch, he can play a linebacker. You hope you don't have that many injuries, but he can do it. He started games at linebacker in the NFL, and he is a team captain. One of the reasons why is the personality that he brings to the table. There's nobody like Nick Ballore. And so for fans that wonder why they invested $6 million in a two-year contract in him, this goes beyond what he does on the field. This guy is one of your culture setters. He's truly become one of those guys. And that's why he's now going to be entering what I believe is his fifth season in Seattle. It's hard to believe, but this guy, I think he's going into his 13th season as a former undrafted player out of central Michigan. That is a remarkable feat. Yeah, it is remarkable. And as you alluded to, I mean, he's he's played fullback. He's played middle linebacker. He has aced every way. He is a core four special teamer uh, for a team captain. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, now working in the scouting business in a, in a different realm with my own club, uh, Corbin, we, we have these players sometimes where you'll debate about where the, the coaches love a guy and the scouts love a different guy. Uh, Nick Ballore is the kind of guy that the coaches love, but the scouts don't necessarily like. Although that's a heck of a picture of him for those of you who are watching uh, on YouTube right now. Nick Ballore is a cut up guy. I mean, when you see that kind of his videos and this Oz shucks kind of personality, it, it, he makes it look like he's not a great athlete that he does not put in the work he absolutely does but at the same time he plays one of those myriad of positions not any one set position and so the scouts don't necessarily like him quite as much but my goodness as you said he's one of those glue guys that you have to have on your team i i, I don't know how you quantify it but i think that nick Ballore gives the seahawks wins year in and year out just with his ability to play so many different roles and his ability to kind of keep the the, the locker room loose i think there's there's something there's that undefined it that the quarterbacks have that the leaders have Nick Ballore has that and I think there's a reason why Seattle has has kept him around and uh you know and rewarded him as handsomely as they have I think another player that has a chance down the line to be a glue guy and maybe he's not a full-time starter who knows what's going to happen with Kobe Bryant because the Seahawks have invested a number of different things a number of different picks in that cornerback position you've got Tariq Woolen and you've got Devin Witherspoon now but Bryant is the incumbent slot corner. He still expects he's going to be playing that position. This is going to be his second full year playing it. So you should expect there's going to be an uptick in his play. He's much more comfortable there. We saw that as the season progressed a year ago as a rookie. His second half numbers, he didn't give up any touchdowns in the second half. He was a far better player in coverage. But this is the kind of guy that has the makeup to down the line be somebody that is going to be viewed as a potential team captain or or be a clubhouse leader, so to speak, because of the way that he handles the game. And, and this is dating back to his time at Cincinnati. This is just one of those dogs that gets after it. He's not going to complain. He's going to do whatever the coach is. I mean, he didn't complain last year when Pete Carroll said, hey, you know what, I know you've never really played this slot, but we're going to move you to the slot. Kobe Bryant is the Red Mamba. He is not going to complain about that. He's going to move to the position. He's going to do the best he can, and he's going to work every day to improve at it. And you can just see that quiet but effective leadership from him on the field. This is a guy that impressed the veterans last year for a reason. So I do think that Kobe Bryant's got some of that same DNA, even as a second-year player, and you can see with the way he improved last year. You can see those intangibles coming into play. 
Yeah, I, again, I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of similarities to Mike Jackson. Uh, Mike Jackson played a lot more outside, at least from what I remember at Miami, and Kobe uh, played a little bit all over the field, and that's one of the things I liked about him coming out of Cincinnati. Um, you know, but again, that that same type of mentality, I think that's um, one of the things that, that Seattle really likes about him, and again, the, the positional versatility. I, I do think this is a big year for him. Um, Seattle making the you know the the, the big time investment in Devin Witherspoon, um, even with Trey Brown there, even with Mike Jackson there, and obviously we know what Tariq Woolen is there. Uh, I think that that we have to see continued improvement from Kobe Bryant. I was very encouraged, as you mentioned, he did not give up a touchdown in the second half of last year. I, I want to see him play more and, and more critical snaps. Uh, you know, I, I I'm excited about what I've seen from Kobe Bryant, but I have not been floored by what I saw from him. And, and so I want to see him continue to kind of make steps. Uh, otherwise, I think that the, the defensive talent on, on this squad and this secondary is good enough that it could leave him on the outside looking in when it comes to playing time. And considering his big name as the Thorpe Award winner and seeing some pretty considerable time as a rookie, uh, I think some Seahawks fans might be surprised if he doesn't get himself onto the field this year. Yeah, Julian Love's another player we have to mention here, too, because he has played a lot in the slot as well. So he's going to have competition there. This job is not just going to be given back to him. He's got to maintain it by making improvement with the new competition that has been added. With all the new weapons the Seahawks have on offense, we've talked Jackson Smith and Jig, but you know, they've still got DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. D. Eskridge is still around. The tight ends have kind of become a little bit of a forgotten discussion point at times this offseason. And I've mentioned it. I do think it's going to be difficult to get a lot of targets to the tight ends because there's only one football on the field and all the different players that they're going to be trying to feed the ball to. Tight ends are probably going to get the short end of the stick. Although, ironically, with a 6-7 tight end, maybe Colby Parkinson is the one that can buck that trend, Rob, because I look at the receiver Seattle has obviously DK Metcalf at his size. He should be a red zone weapon, but he's been somewhat inconsistent down there at that end of the field. Kobe, uh, Kobe Parkinson should be one of the premier tight ends in the league when you get inside the 20s. When you're talking about a guy that's 6'7", you can run the way he can with the soft hands. He had no drops last season, an improved blocker too. You know, we talk about Will Disley and Noah Fant. They're both higher in our rankings. Uh, they've got more established snaps, but I still wonder if Parkinson might have the highest upside, at least on this particular football team, because his strengths maybe have a chance to be uh, utilized more in this offense with the other weapons they have around. Even with Smith and Jigba coming to town, Parkinson, that size in the red zone, that could give him a lot of touchdown opportunities this year, especially with the growth he showed finally being healthy. A year ago. Corbin, I've agreed with a lot of the things that you've said during today's show, but none of them have I agree with as passionate as I do what you just said about Kobe Parkinson being one of the most underrated players in, in really in the NFL. I think that he could he could be a, an absolute superstar if he was a featured component of Seattle's offense. I, I don't see many tight ends who are built the way that he is that can run like he can. He's 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 not an explosive like four four kind of a guy, but he he, he has these long strides. He gets to gallop him pretty good. He, he shows some savviness. Um and then he's got terrific body control. You you put that ball up, he can jump up in the air, kind of twist and contort in space and just pluck the football 
ball at its highest point, really used his height to his advantage. It's one of the things that frustrates me sometimes with DK Metcalf. We don't see him use all of that six foot four height to yep. his full advantage. He catches the ball right here half the time rather than way up here. You see Kobe Parkinson at times extend those arms and snatch the ball out of the air. So I agree with you. I think that Kobe Parkinson could be a true just difference-making type of a weapon in the NFL. I just don't know that Seattle is going to get him the ball. Um, you know, we just were, were having the conversation before about like the most underrated players at different positions. I think that Kobe Parkinson could wind up going the NFL to an offense that is going to feature him. I think it could be freaking Jimmy Graham. I think the guy could go absolutely nuts and, and just be a red zone target that gets 10, 12 touchdowns for a club. And so for the life of me, I understand why Seattle hasn't taken better advantage of that other than the fact that, as you alluded to, you got a terrific, actually more explosive athlete in Noah Fant, who I, in my opinion, just had the footwork that Kobe Parkinson have, Kobe Parkinson has, and then a just a bruiser in Will Disley. And, and so I, I love the, the the strides that we've seen from Parkinson as a blocker. I think that he really is coming to his own. And for a still a, a fairly young player in terms of just his body, I really think that the, the sky is the limit for Kobe Parkinson in Seattle or for another club. And he's just improved so much as a blocker last year. You know, the first couple of years in the league, we didn't get to see a lot of him anyway, because he had injury issues with his feet, but he just didn't look comfortable with inline blocking. He was a receiver when he first went to Stanford. He was 220 pounds, but they've added a lot of muscle and his mindset has just changed. And now he can handle those inline duties, which means a lot more snaps. By the end of the year, he was getting some of the snaps that Noah Fant was getting early in the year. So I do think that that is a storyline that's going to be interesting to watch. And we might talk about that on a later episode. Let's get to our last player here on this segment of the countdown for Seattle to really make that big leap they want to make this year. You and I are both probably in agreement on this. The interior offensive line being better than a year ago would be a big part of that. If they can get better pass protection, better run blocking, just better performance as a whole from their interior offensive line, the Seahawks are hoping that Evan Brown is going to be able to contribute for that. They signed into a one-year contract coming over from Detroit. Now, you look at the numbers last year. He mostly played guard. And his pass protection was not near as good. He gave up 22 pressures, only two sacks, though. So there was some good and some bad. But the year before, when he played mostly center, stepping into the lineup for Frank Ragnow, he only gave up eight pressures and a sack the entire season. If the Seahawks can get that type of production from their center, and Evan Brown is going to instantly be a better blocker in the run game than what Austin Blythe was just because he's got more strength. He's got more girth to him. He's just a, he's just a nastier player. You automatically are going to have a better offense if you have a center that can upgrade both those areas. And at least statistically, Brown has been able to do that when he has played center. Guard, not so much, but at center has been a really good fit, both as a pass protector and a run blocker. You're going to be a better offensive line just because the fact that you had number seven in the quarterback rather than number three in Russell Wilson. I and mean, that, that was one of the Russell Wilson's biggest strengths, as you and I have talked about so many times, is his pressure in his face as a shorter quarterback. He is automatically going to scramble and be all heck break loose. And sometimes that worked out very, very well for Seattle. A lot of times it resulted in Aaron Donald getting yet another sack or whatever the case might be. With, with Geno Smith and his experience playing shotgun and, and really being able to – 
at his height, be able to kind of look over the top of, of pass rushers. Um, and again, just his experience in the shotgun offense, the Shane Waldron's offense often is, and Geno Smith's offense going all the way back was, as well as what Jared Goff did in Detroit. And that's what, of course, what Evan Brown has been blocking for Jared Goff in Detroit the last couple of years. I think that that is going to allow Geno Smith here in Seattle a little bit more time, a little bit more comfort um, than, than what he may have experienced last year. So ultimately, that's where I do agree with you is I do think that Seattle can expect improved play at the offensive line, whether it be Evan Brown or whether it be the rookie Oluwatimi. I do think that Seattle is going to be improved in that regard, and that's one of the reasons that Seattle's offense could uh, just be you know getting even better in 2023 than it was last season. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up tomorrow on our Thursday episode, we'll be diving into the cornerback group more in-depth in our latest training camp preview and, of course, continuing our 90-man countdown with numbers 25 through 21. We officially get into the top 25. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in, and enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Go Hawks.